Welcome to Stream of Unconsciousness, where we put you to sleep with random dad anecdotes from a real dad. Let's get to it. It's a beautifully sunny day here in Southern California. Birds are chirping, the cars are honking, trees are blooming yet again. It's an odd phenomenon in Southern California where it constantly is sunny and nice and we'll get a, a random rain shower that'll cause all the flowers and all the fruit trees and all the other trees around to just bloom and just pop back out again and again and again every couple weeks up until end of July and beginning of August when it starts to get kind of too hot and no more of those rainstorms. So then everything just slowly shrivels up until October when we get a freak rainstorm around uh, Halloween time. There are only a couple times where we have seasonal showers in the Los Angeles area. And it seems every year they come around holidays, some different holidays, Halloween, normally the week leading up to Halloween, it rains for a couple days, like right before Halloween, and everybody freaks out, like, oh no, it's gonna rain on Halloween, what are we gonna do? And then it might sprinkle on Halloween, or it'll just be just sort of hazy and misty, and that leads to the, the ambiance. It's very, very nice there. The other holiday that tends to rain on is Valentine's Day in mid-February, which is also good if you want to take your Valentine over to a theme park. Valentine's Day shows up in the middle of a week. You can show up at many of the theme parks. Everybody in Los Angeles say it's like they think they're made out of cotton candy or something, the way that everybody runs from the rain whenever it appears. So that's the perfect time to go out to a theme park is when it's even just a, a light drizzle. Of course, people forget how to drive in Los Angeles when it rains, too. So that's part of the problem. So just have to be wary of all of the crazy accidents. Everybody either drives 10 miles per hour or 110 miles per hour, and both are on the freeways at the same time. So you just have to look out for the numerous accidents that will be on your way to a theme park. But once you're there, it's almost guaranteed that there will be less people than normal and a nice day to, to go out. Also, one of the things in Southern California that happens is that when there's rain and then all the flowers bloom, all the trees bloom, and means that everybody's seasonal allergies are more than seasonal. They seem to be monthly or even bi-weekly allergies as everything thinks, oh, it's warm and wet again. It's spring again. Let's bloom again. Let's go toss a bunch of pollen into the air again, which is not fun for allergy sufferers like myself and other folks around. And that is uh, compounded by the fact that it, in the late 1950s, uh, hearing about different city planners and throughout the planning stages in Southern California, when the city planners came through, they were tired of having trees that were fruiting trees and these fruiting trees would then drop fruit um, on the public land and public walkways. That would be a nuisance that then you'd have to hire staff people, gardeners, whomever, to go and clean up and take care of. And it also presented a potential slipping hazard for, for passerbys and people like that. So they came through and decided that it would be better to get rid of a majority of the male tree or the female trees that were actually fruiting trees and change them all into male trees, which didn't produce any byproduct or anything that you had to worry about. The problem being now that we have a bunch of trees, the same kind of trees, because the city planners wanted, okay, we want to be uniform. We have one large purchase order. Let's purchase well, a couple of thousand of these same trees and make it the same trees across all the different places within the city. And let's make sure they're all male trees so that they 
don't drop any fruit that we have to worry about picking up or worry about people slipping on. And so now all these trees all go and throw their pollen out at the same time. And it is almost unbearable. There are times when I walk out to my car and my car is this sheen of yellowish green because of all of the, the pine and fir trees and all the other trees that just constantly are just throwing pollen all over the cars and all over everywhere up inside your nose and face and everything. Um, times we're driving past and you can see the wind shift into a, a big pine tree. You can just see the greenish sort of like cloud of pollen coming off of it. It's beautiful, but also kind of gross at the same time, thinking about all the allergy stuff that's just all around you. So you have your, your air filters, your HEPA filters, or your ionic breeze filters or something like that to help combat that. Now, ionic breeze filter is good, but it also is, it's good because you don't have to worry about the filter and worry about, you know, you've got the filter, you've got it more or less working, it's in a good place, and then you get a little flashing dot or it doesn't work as well, and you have to go out, you have to buy a filter, you have to change it, or sometimes you have to go and there's a little pre-filter, which is just like a little piece of, um, woven plastic sort of on the top of it that catches the big bits and then when that gets past the actual filter part of it it then has another filter that you either have to swap out you can blow out the first pre-filter or knock it out in the front porch you end up getting all the stuff on you that you're trying to get away from and then it's invariably the day that you have to go and change the filter is the day that you realize that you don't have any backup spares and that's also the same time that you realize that sort of like a a printer that you go and change the cartridges only to find out that your printer is no longer supported. The same thing with the filter. Oh, it was a, a special filter that is no longer made. So you paid for this, this filter and you paid for the actual machine and you have to rebuy the filter and they don't make them. So you have to rebuy another machine with another filter. And what are you going to do with the first machine? Are you going to give it to someone in the hopes that they have filters for it, and it just becomes more electronic waste that you have to worry about. Now, with Ionic Breeze or some of these other Ionic filters, you don't have to worry about that because as the dust particles go through, they become charged and ionized by the electricity that, that goes through and they become sticky and they stick to these two different contact points on either side as they blow through the, the filter machine. And so it means you don't have to worry about cleaning the filter. You just go and you wipe down the sort of like dust residue stuff that gets stuck to the, the different contact points, which is good. And it's also a, a fun sort of thing to do. It makes you realize, oh, okay, look, I can see how much work this has done, how much better I am without all this stuff in the air. I can have a tactile proof that it's actually doing something for the money I'm spending for the electricity that it's using. Now, you can also pick them up and slide them, and they've got these little um, little balls that are attached to the leads, and they go up and down to clean the actual leads, and so you can pull the, the rod out. It's sort of like if you were to think of a submarine, and they have like this torpedo tube, and they have this big tube, they chuk, chuk, and they lock it in place, and chuk, chuk, they pull it back out again, or You've seen like the new Star Trek um, Discovery where they have the, the tubes that they have, those particles that they use for the, to jump through the whatever time space stuff that they do, the same sort of stuff. Or if you're watching Avengers when they had the, um, the Tesseract cube was in that same sort of big circular holding thing that then gets put into a, a large cover case that you can then turn and take back out again or like a container of ooze from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that same sort of cylindrical device within another cylindrical thing now this you can take the filter out of the housing component and then you can wipe it down and then you turn it the whole component itself upside down and right side up for these little beads to clean off those actual contact wires within the machine itself that makes once again a fun little shk sort of 
sound as they go along the wires back and forth, which is kind of interesting, kind of fun, and that satisfactory sort of like OCD thing, where like in the old days before we had mice, uh, computer mice that were the, the optical mice, you would have the ball mice, which would be a, a mouse on your computer, you'd roll around and the contact points, there'd be a ball that would rub against two, three wheels on, on inside the actual mouse itself. And that's what would cause your cursor to move around on the screen on your computer monitor. And after a while of rolling around on your mouse pad, it would there be dust and dirt and probably skin bits or whatever else that would be there. And they'd get rolled around on the mouse ball and they'd get ground up into a nice little paste that would then get accumulated onto the little wheels, contact wheels inside the mouse. And after a while, you would realize that your mouse wasn't working quite as well anymore. And you'd rub it around, it would sort of skip a little bit or it wouldn't quite work on one side. You'd flip your, your computer mouse upside down, take the little, there was a circular cover case over the top of it, turn that counterclockwise to pop that little circular disc off that would keep the mouse ball in place. Take the mouse ball out, give it a, a little quick little rub and clean there. Wouldn't have to really do much. Maybe check to make sure that it didn't have a dent or a chip or a whatever out of it. It would invariably fall on the floor and you'd be afraid that you had dented it at that point. Pick it back up and be fine. But then you'd check the actual little wheels on the inside and you could, it's almost like peeling a an apple in one long peel feels like it's a weird, great feeling that you get from, from that sense of satisfaction. The same thing with the mouse wheel, ball, little contacts. If you can scrape it a little bit, you would be able to peel an entire circle of this ground down contact muck off of each of the little wheels. And you look at it and go, oh, neat and gross at the same time. I can now see everything that I've been in contact with since the last time I did this, which means my hands are probably really gross and my desk is pretty disgusting. I am a horrible trash person. And you'd go and throw them away in a trash can and that's when you would go and spend your monthly or tri-monthly whatever desk cleaning time because you just realized how much dust and accumulated stuff there was around in the air. And this is also inside. This isn't like a Los Angeles thing where it has to do with the pollen or anything like that. This is just the way it was in the old days. You kids nowadays with your optical mice and your mighty mice and all of your other stuff, you don't realize the struggle that we went through to just keep our computer components in working order. You never know. Hashtag the struggle is real. But, uh, that was something that was sort of like housekeeping that you would have to do inside the office or on, on your computer. It was back also in sort of the days when you had to interact with your computers a lot more and think about and understand how they actually worked as compared to just everything, quote unquote, just working now. I talked to a developer that I was working with years ago and um, quasi-famous uh, designer who is really known for both his engineering and his designing and is talking about his son getting into computers. I thought, I asked him, I said, that's terrific. It's, he's got you as a dad. That must be really amazing to have you as like a, a mentor and a teacher. And do you guys, does he come to you with questions about how the computers work or, or what he should do or anything like that? Cause you, you could show him everything and it'd be a great opportunity for him. And he said, no, no, he doesn't really care to, he doesn't need to. Then he told me a nice dad story where he said, when I was younger, what I did on the weekends was we had a car that my dad would work on and my uncle would come over and that's what we'd do. We'd go and we'd 
change the oil, we'd go and we would play the, replace the brake pads, we'd just sit there and tune it up and we'd do all that stuff ourselves, just in the in front of the garage. And that was what you were able to do. You could pop the hood, you could look in, you could see all the components, you could see how it worked. And we would sit there and we'd be able to tinker with it. And the computers were sort of like that back in the day too. You had access to that root level of the computer. You sort of needed to back before Windows or the operating systems that controlled everything. You needed to know basic computer commands to even get your computer to function. It would start up and it would have a cursor blinking at you. And if you didn't know what to type in, it wouldn't do anything. You'd have to go in, put the directory you wanted, put the execute command that you wanted to happen. And so you had to have a, a rudimentary understanding of folder structure, commands, and some uh, troubleshooting just to be able to do anything on a computer back in the day. And now computers just work. You said my, my Mac laptop turns on and boots up, same thing my PC. A PC still has a lot more advantages to Mac in that aspect in that you can build your own more easily. You can go in and update your operating system. You can still go into your, your base level directories, although Windows will say, hey, you try to go into your, your computer C drive and go, oh, are you sure you want to go into this directory? You can mess some stuff up here and gives you a scary sort of prompt, but you can still go in and play around with a lot more of that still, but it's, it's sort of dissuaded and hidden away for the most part. They want to keep all that geeky engineering talk like hidden from the normal people because the average people would mess up their stuff now. And so he says the same thing where he goes to his, his car, said I pop the hood on my car and I look in and I can check my oil and that's pretty much it. The whole thing is one large computer and one large component that's also covered by all these other cases and covers and stuff within my car. So it's not like the old cars where I could sit there and just mess around with it and get it to, to, to function or just tweak it or whatever. My car now is a big computer that I, whenever it isn't working quite right, what I need to do is I need to take it into a special mechanic who hooks that computer in my car up to their computer and the two computers speak to each other. The same thing, he said with my son, his computer just works, so he's not interested in me telling him how the guts work or how I, he could program X or Y because it works just fine on its own. There's no real reason for him to want to know how it works because there are all these UI components and forward-facing like things that he doesn't have to worry about that. He can just go into a settings menu and change it and tweak it and customize it and then doesn't have to worry about the, the rest of going into it and actually playing with the guts of it or there's unless he really wants to get into coding and building it out himself and that's all whole nother ball of wax and a whole nother side of computers that you would really want to have an in active interest in instead of just, oh yeah, my son likes computers because everybody likes computers. And it's sort of like back when I was a kid where being a, a nerd or a geek was not a good thing. You had to sort of, you got made fun of if you talked about how much you liked comic books or how much you liked video games or something like that. Back in those days, like the, that's, I was part of a, a subset of, of nerds and geeks who played role-playing games and went and read comic books and was interested in all the different superheroes and such like that. Now it's part of pop culture. It's part of the, the grand everything the large blockbuster movies are now comic book movies. Stranger Things is on Netflix and everybody wants to be that nerdy person and is really uh, excited about showing off how nerdy they are and how much weird side like knowledge they have about 
music or something else like that. It's a it's an interesting turn of events where we were the ones who were made fun of for all of our weird obsessions and our our weird side interests and and now the people that in high school were the the jocks or the ones who never showed any interest in any of that stuff or are alongside going there talking about comic con or e3 or other things like that it's, it's interesting how it shifted i think it all shifted in the in the late 90s when the um, s p 500 and the nasdaq changed and started putting tech stocks in there as well and so in the 80s the people that were making a lot of money that had a lot of the power were the wall street brokers and that meant that there were a lot of those sort of like bro uh, athletes that were in that in that powerful those powerful positions and so those were the ones making money and so those the ones who had the power and so those were the ones who really sort of drove the narrative of what someone was looking up to, sort of like in in Spain, where all of a sudden in, people are, have a different accent when you're in Castilian Spain because one of their kings years and years and years ago had a lisp, and so he was the king, and so everybody around him started having that same affect because that was a cool thing to do or to be like nelly with his band-aid over his nose or people with grills on their teeth or special tattoos or hairstyles or clothing styles or something that people take their cues from the other people who are in power or the people who are popular and people who have money and class and influence and so that's changed to now the people who have money in the 90s became the dot-com folks, which the dot-com boomers, and then that turned into a lot of the tech industry folks. So now looking to the tech people who are the money makers and also the ones who are having a lot of influence on what we're seeing and how we're seeing it. And that's a lot of the, the nerdy types now. So those people who would have those sporty bro guys that used to go into Wall Street and be those tycoon Wall Street sort of douchebags are now um, on the development side and they're the biz dev managers and they're the ones who are quote unquote leading disruption and they're the ones that are now have their own uh, startups and IPOs and all of that so you have that same unfortunate you know misogynistic attitude and tone but it's in a more tech-centered way so they can't do what they want to do without us nerdy people that are interested in this stuff too so it's just part of the the culture it's be interesting to see what the, the next shift would be if there's another technology shift or societal shift you've got that and you have the sort of opposite side of that too which would be like the the hipster side you've got the super technology and the backlash is this super granola get back to the earth big beards lumberjacking style while you're also part of a quote-unquote disruptive uh, application app culture where you're, you're you're making your money entirely on vaporware product that doesn't really do anything or does something very mundane but is marketed in a very hyper specific way uh, like the the peloton bicycles where everybody nobody wanted to go and do any of their working out or whatever at home and then peloton poured so much money into the marketing for their product it was everywhere before last christmas um facebook google all sorts of ads youtube everywhere and then all of a sudden that was part of the cool thing for christmas was people talking about logging all the stuff they'd done on their new pelotons and it was very interesting to see what people are taking 
people latch on to or all it takes is a quote-unquote viral BuzzFeed article to show off something and a lot of these quote-unquote viral quote-unquote articles end up just being marketing material for a product that already existed. I remember seeing one about this uh, uh, a collapsible staff. You'd press a little button on the side and it was extendable and the girl's whipping it around like she's doing some kung fu sort of stuff. And they're like, that's amazing. It's stupendous. It's blah, 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 blah sort of thing. Uh, be a superhero sort of thing, cashing in on the superhero trend. And then they were selling them for like 10 or 15 or something dollars. And it's the same product that my wife bought from a Chinese wholesaler for me for like $1.25 or 75 cents or something like that the year before. So that's the disruptive thing that they're doing is manipulating what people think they're, they're doing and they want to come in on something that is hip and cool and trendy, but they're actually just being manipulated by somebody with products that already exist that they're paying, you know, sometimes 10 times markup for. But if it makes you feel cool, then that's fine. The new culture is also part of it is how to how to show off what you're doing, what your accomplishments are, and who you are around your other friends. And it's sort of like the social social bragging and that FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out, where someone else is doing something really cool, and so you should too. And that's unfortunate in that it's pulling people away from the truth and you're just only showing the, the best parts of what you're doing. Or in some cases, it's both ends of the spectrum where you only hear from people when they're doing really amazing and doing a really cool event or something that they want to show off or they're doing really terribly and they're really asking for, for help and they're at the bottom of a lot of other stuff. So that's... Uh, it's difficult for me to see that sometimes. And also, sometimes it's annoying to see these events that are gone to some. There's a Candy Topia or the Museum of Ice Cream or just heard about a, a glow-in-the-dark glow ramen shop. And some of them are fun, but a majority of all they are are a way and a platform for you to take selfies that you can then post on your social media and the thing itself is actually pretty mundane and boring, but the photos you post are going to look really, really cool. So which is more important, the actual thing and having a, an interesting, fun time, being part of an event, being part of this, this community sort of experience, or looking like you did something cool that your friends weren't able to do on social media? Oh, it, it seems like we'll get to a point where there's a pushback on that. But at the same time, that's a lot of what this celebrity culture is, is there are people who have never had a job, never done anything, but they're quote unquote influencers. And that's their full time position is to go and take pictures of what they're doing and cool things they're doing. And everybody else is interested in their lives and wants to be them. And there are many kids that that's what they want to do. What you want to do when you grow up, being an influencer is a valid response, which seems kind of ridiculous. It's like saying, what do you want to be? I want to be famous. Yeah, but what do you want to do to get famous? No, I just want to be famous. And that's all I want to do. And I want to tell people what I like and what I don't like and then they will listen to me and they will give me what I like because I am important, because I say I am. We are halfway through our commute, which means I'm halfway through tonight's show. I think we're gonna talk a little bit about ice cream. I remember as a kid, we used to make homemade ice cream a couple of different ways, like we used to do it. I wonder if it was a way for the parents to tucker out the kids because there was like the the big bucket that you had, like the, the, the cream and the sugar and strawberries, whatever fruit, whatever you're mixing into it. And that was all set inside another secondary larger bucket, which was had the ice and uh, salt in there because I think salt does something with ice 
weird that salt is like that where boiling there's something some weird thing i don't know about the difference between what ice does as a catalyst for water whether that's boiling so you put the salt in the water to make it boil faster or to prevent it from over boiling or to do something i always remember throwing in a little salt to help boiling water with pasta or whatever you can also put the salt inside your ice to protect prevent the ice from melting faster or something i guess but you also throw the salt on roads when it's snowing out you salt the roads to melt the snow and the ice so there's something going on there that i as a grown man still have no idea about and i'm okay with that's what google is for um so we would make the ice cream put it all there and then it would have a big churning handle on the top and the kids would take turns churning the ice cream and we'd sit there and would have to take four ever it wouldn't be like oh we'll churn it for 10 to 15 minutes and it's done no this took at least might have been 10 to 15 minutes but this is child time waiting for ice cream to be made which is like nine months it might have taken 15 minutes but it was it was the entire time of birthing a child for a child to birth their own ice cream baby so about nine months child time um, to go through and so you'd have to rotate through a number of children in that amount of time and of course everyone wanted to take their turn doing this manual labor task because your hope was that you would be there at the time the anointed time when the parent would come down from on high and say it is time for the ice cream to be born and then you can take that large paddle out of the ice cream bucket and look at it and then if you have the paddle you have the power they scrape most of that ice cream off but it's almost like getting a it's like a, having a birthday cake and you have the birthday candles you everybody wants the birthday candles off the top of the cake to just lick that little bit of frosting there's more wax than frosting off of those things but for some reason it's like yes i for one get to have part of this before anybody else and two i have extra on top of my piece or my serving that i normally have i don't care that most of this is actual wax crust and spit from the birthday kid but i'm okay with that because haha i had a little dollop of frosting when you guys didn't and the same thing here with the ice cream where i'm really happy that i've got the little bit of ice cream you scrape it off they give you the paddle back and you can do lick a little bit of that it's not like it was like the paddle and like when you're doing frosting for a cake that is like a glorious day when you get those batters or when you're making cookies and you take them out and they scrape most of it and you have the cookie batter paddle that's just that was amazing and that's what they should make that's what the standard cake pop should be i think should be a little cookie batter paddle from like a, a mixing paddle or beater that would be the best but uh we would eat that and that was all the best because it was usually really hot you'd have that you'd have watermelon and that was just a good time and now they have the electric mixers which still took an average of 12 months child time to make any sort of thing i just think it, it took overnight or something i just remember we didn't use it very often it was very loud we had to throw like towels or something over the top of it and it looked almost like the, the machine itself was this huge contraption over the top of this the outer edge, outside there was this yield and classic looking wooden bucket that would hold the ice slurry and then you have your metal cylinder and once again a metal cylinder that would hold all of your ingredients and you would drop on top of this whole thing it looked almost like a, a jackhammer sort of device that latched onto the sides of the yield and bucket and then was set down in the middle of the cylinder and that would do all of the actual mixing for you and it was very loud and didn't work very well and if you didn't do it long enough you would just end up with a glorified milkshake and then if you did it too long or if they didn't check it or 
I don't know, it was a kid, they had to flip it or check it. I just remember constantly checking it, and it was never quite ready until it was, and then it was like this big hunk of ice cream, and that was glorious. But because we weren't the ones that were doing the churning, then we were the ones that were constantly checking on it, which probably heated it up and took actually longer. But that was just in my memory of it. And now nowadays, I remember a couple years ago, seeing in like a Sky Mall catalog or some online side-scrolling ad for like an ice cream barrel, where it's the same thing, but what you do is you put it inside like a cylinder, cylindrical barrel, and the kids can then roll it around. And the kids have to roll this back and forth to then mix everything together, and then you can take the outer outside and it's like a, a frozen cylinder instead of having the ice, ice whatever. It's this frozen cylinder on the outside that then the kids have to keep rotating and spinning and rolling to be able to, to make the ice cream inside and mixes it together. And so that's a good way for the kids to just run around in the yard and kick the ice cream around, you know, like you do. But remember the old days back when you'd go around and just sit at auntie's house and go kick the ice cream around? Neither do I. No, um, ice cream has changed throughout the years, though. Like, I remember as a child, it was that. It was what I was just saying. It was cream and sugar and some of the flavoring ingredients. And then you could buy your ice cream at the store, and that was pretty much the same thing. But now there's the weird ingredients inside of the emulsifiers and stretcheners and things. It's like got that weird whipped texture to it where you eat it and it doesn't quite have the same, I don't want to say gravitas, but it just doesn't feel as dense as it was, partially because they are literally whipping more air into it to make it lighter. So by volume, there's the same amount, but there's less to it. And also they're whipping other ingredients into it that's like a thickening agent, which means that they have to put less actual costly ingredients in and then they can have the, still the same amount in the quart of ice cream. This is not like it's a candy bar, where candy bars, the size of the wrapper remains the same, but the candy inside is getting less and less. There was, I think it was the, was the Three Musketeers bar or something like that, that was the light bar that said it was one-third the calories, and so it was actually one-third the calories, because it was one-third the size. Literally two-thirds of the bar, the regular bar, that they're charging the same amount for, but they put a different package on it that says it's a lower-calorie light version, which is just A, brilliant, and B, ridiculous. And I understand some of that with corn chips or something where you have chips in a package, and then you need to have some air inside the package because the chips are delicate, and the chips could break when they're in transit, when they're in the chip truck on the way to the chippery to then be chip delivered to the chip store to be chip eaten by Chipotle, then they need to make sure that there's a little bit of extra padding in between them. It's not like they can put little pillow packs inside for all the little chippies to go to sleep on their way down to your house to go down your gullet. But also, that's a good excuse that I've opened some packages of chips and seen a lot less chips in there. It all seems like more more space and more, more extra buffer room than actual chip that needs the buffering. And I've gone up to the, the mountains, too. You go up to the mountains and you've got your your package of chips or your all of your snacks. Some of them are chips. And then you go from like your sea level and then you go up into the mountains to go skiing. And then all of a sudden you just hear in the back is like all your Ziploc containers of like your sandwiches and your fruit or whatever popping in the, in the, in the seats behind you in the back area of the open trunk. And then you look at your chips and your chips are puffed up like a, huge Thanksgiving Day balloon and you can use them sort of as like uh, to sleep on like a pillow 
And so I, I can get that they need more room for that. You don't want to go up to the mountains and have a crazy chip explosion when somebody goes to open their snack for the day. They're done on the slopes. They've gone from the, the green circles to the to the blue squares. They made their way down the, the easy breezy channel, whatever they'd call the long road all the way through the ski slopes. They finished their snow plow, finally gone parallel on their skis. There's a lot of skiing, snow skiing terminology here. So if you haven't gone snow skiing before, this will make no sense to you. And so hopefully I hope you go nighty night. But then you go down to the lodge, you've got your hot cocoa, you've got like a Swiss Miss hot cocoa, which is just like the most, I mean, once again, as a kid, you just think everything's amazing and even the Swiss Miss cocoa is amazing. And how many marshmallows do I have in my cup of cocoa versus how many marshmallows does she have in her cup of cocoa when it's pretty much just cornstarch and sugar. They're tiny little bits of nothing. And the whole thing, they put way too much water for the amount of cocoa. You should have at least two cocoa packets per cup is what it seems like. Otherwise, it's just barely flavored colored water at that point, but it's warm and you're a kid and it's sugar and it's sort of milky and it's a treat. And so there's this thing in your body where you're like, yes, this is what I like because I'm a young child and I don't know any better. And that's what you feel like. So you sip on your cocoa and you're like, mm, yummy cocoa. And then you open your chips and the chips blow your hair back from all the pressure and then all those chips come shooting out like a blunderbuss, just shrapnel of Cool Ranch up into your big hair and all up in your nose and get embedded in the wall behind you as a cautionary tale to other ski slopers. What happens when you overload your chip bag and the Frito-Lay Corporation changes and then I open my chip bag and it's half air and half nacho cheese, Dorito, Taco Bell flavor. And, and then I end up kind of sad, a little bit unfulfilled, both in the soul and in the tummy. But once again, who makes these decisions? Is there a, a chip expert? I mean, they probably got sued if there's something did actually pop in someone's face. There's probably a threshold from how much pressure you have to be able to exert upon a a package at X and Y sea level before it, it loses structural stability. And I would love to meet that person whose job it is to sit there and test the different packages, probably have robots that are doing it. I mean, there probably was originally someone who was like a package, not, I'm not a package tester like that, but like a, a tester of wrapping goods that make sure that they do not explode upon contact with X amount of joules of force upon a finger, one finger, two finger, full, full hand of pressure upon a package to try and open slash crush it, slash displace the, the precious contents inside. Maybe they worked within this family business where we'd been package pushers for 40 years, your grandfather, your great-grandfather were all package pushers from Poland and the old country, and they came over seeking the new manifest destiny of decimating dinner delights over here, pushing with force. They know it's, it's a tough gig to get into. It's really difficult because, you know, there's the there's the lobbying corporations and there's the, the unions and they have to make sure that they abide by the rules and then they pay their dues and they have to pay off the appropriate politicians because now, flash forward to today, you've now got a long line of the, of the package pusher testing people and then what happens now? They've got robots and the robots take over. And now they've got a robot that pushes a package. And they've got, they've got now got a testing, a barometric testing chamber that 
instead of taking these things up, you'd have to take horse and cart up to the top of the hill and back every day, a, a trek that would take you back and forth. And now they've got it a chamber that seals itself up and the packages get blown up to the correct amount. And then a big robotic finger comes down from the ceiling or up through a, something or sits on a table and then it pushes against the chip package. And then that's, that's your life then. What do you do? You don't even get to push the package till it pops anymore. You have to just notate whether it popped or not and what the results were. And then the board is unsure about where the future is for this company and the futures in, in chips are uncertain and that changes the way that the corn industry views their place in the world. And then everything is just unknown and it's all all coming around because because of what we're doing in the world with our with our chips and how we're moving through and how we like ice cream just churn through the rest of the time that we have together word from our sponsors. How does sponsoring work in an app where people are supposed to be asleep? I mean, if I put ads inside this, if I'm doing my job correctly, you will never hear them. Well, you might subconsciously hear them, but is that good enough? Is that sort of like should I play my sponsorship messages backwards so they go into your subconscious and that turns them back around the right way, like old rock and roll music in the late 80s, early 90s? Remember that was a thing, Judas Priest, and there's the B-52's album, where the end of the album was played, you played it, backwards again would say oh no you're playing the record backwards watch out you could ruin your needle is that what i have to do here i mean should i even does it even matter ultimately but that's the thing is just like the records would be like that I remember having a record with that came with a cereal box for the Ghostbusters cereal. And it was the Ghostbusters 2 cereal. I think it turned your milk green because it was all about the ooze in the second Ghostbusters. And it was inside the back of the cereal box. You could take it out, and it was an actual big square record that you could put on your record album, or you could put on a record player, which would then play, played, I think, the Ghostbusters theme song, and then had a couple of the actors, and they were, I think it was a contest, too, where you would... They'd ask you questions about the secret of the ooze. Was that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the secret of the ooze? The 1980s were really big on ooze and slime. I think that's when that sort of like slime became huge again in the last couple of years. Actually so much so that the price of Elmer's glue went up because there was so much demand and borax as well had to increase their production of of borax because it was being used in all of the slime in the slime craze i wonder if that also had an impact on other industries too like the carpet shampooing machine rentals or new carpet for all i'm sure of the floors that were ruined my numerous 
oozing slime onto the ground. What I do at work, sometimes they have snacks and they have small packages of Haribo gummy bears. And so I'll take the package of gummy bears and I'll put it in my glove compartment, my glove box in my car. And in Southern California, the cars get very hot. And so my son comes into the car and he always checks to see if there's a package of gummy bears because by the time he gets in the car, the gummy bears have all melted together to a single large gummy, uber gummy baron that will then rip it open and eat to his delight. All the flavors sort of mingle together like a large lava lamp sort of weird Akira-like blob slime thing. I guess it's delicious, but I thought I'd be a great dad once and I bought him a regular size large bag of gummy bears that I set flat, laid down flat in my glove box. And he came and he opened it and it was a huge treasure trove. And so he ate part of it and then left it on my center console in between my two cup holders. And I didn't realize it until I got into my car a couple days later and put something in my cup holder. And then when I tried to take it back out again, it did not. All of the gummy bears had once again melted, this time filling all of the nooks and crannies and crevices of my center console, which like any older father, I'm now becoming grandpa in my own car because I have a bunch of stuff in this console. I've got uh, numerous pens and pencils a dongle for my phone so I can charge my phone while I have my headphones in. I've got numerous uh, utensils, old plastic spoons and forks and wet wipes and sunglasses and all sorts of different napkins from many different eating establishments. The card to get into parking at work, some change and all this together got super gummy bear slimed upon. All of my change was there. It all was horribly slimed. I could wiggle one piece of quarter out of it at one time. The rest of it is I just gave up on. My wonderful wife took it into the house and poured boiling water on it. Luckily, it's a, a big plastic console insert that you can take out. And so that got rid of most of it, but I still have the these toothpick sort of flosses, and I went to reach for one a couple of weeks ago, and it was thoroughly stuck inside, and I looked into one of the tiniest side cubbies, and sure enough, there was a leftover reservoir of gummy bear goo from the original incident, but it seemed like all of these slime things came out at the same time. There was the, you can't say that on television, on Nickelodeon. That was the beginning of Nickelodeon's whole sliming fake craze and phase that that started there. And that, of course, moved into Double Dare with all of the slimes and slime pits. And He-Man had a slime pit, the Hordak slime pit. And there was a whole huge thing with all the He-Man characters and slime and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and their ooze and all of that slime as well. You could get gak and slime and gook and whatever permutations of that same word over in little quarter machines. Remember you'd do that, you'd finish up your soccer practice or you'd have a soccer game and you'd go over to Shakey's Pizza at the end of it, and you'd sit in the back room with one of those big rear projection TVs back there. And those TVs now are completely antiquated, but were so state-of-the-art. Once again, more wood paneling on the sides of them. But now what you can do is if you have one of those TVs and the actual projector itself is broken or burned out, the, the lens on the front of the TV or that it's being used to project with is really 
interestingly useful. You can use that Fresnel lens to then use like a, make like a solar cooker. So you take the lens and you can mount it in a frame and then almost use it like a, a super large magnifying glass. And if there was like a movie, Eight-Legged Freaks was real, you could use it to burn oversized, super huge ants, or you could use it to make a solar cooker where you could shine the quasi laser beam of sunlight over at the side of a container to, to heat up water, or you could use it to start a fire, or you could use it to, to heat up like a solar oven sort of thing too. And so when you see one of those TVs on the side of the house, or on the side of the, the street in front of someone's house, you could take it apart and then just wait for your local rubbish disposal place to, to do a, an e-waste and then you could have them pick up the rest of it and you can keep that lens for yourself. We tried that once. My son and I, we would go around on the weekends and one of our favorite games was a game we called Take It Apart, where we would go to a bunch of uh, garage sales and yard sales and find weird old electronics and then take them back home and then using safety glasses and goggles and gloves, he would then use all of his little tool set and we would take the whole thing apart. And I would point out the different pieces that he had there. Oh, that's a, that's a resistor and there's a transistor and there's a, a couple different pieces. Oh, you realize that this looks close to the one that we did over here? He wasn't listening to any of that, of course. He was just enjoying the act of actively dismantling something which was fun for me too. And then we would take apart a lot of the pieces of it. And then invariably I would end up using some of the circuit boards for something we made a, he was, had a Ghostbuster costume one year. And so I took them and found a, a old two way garage sale and found a hiking backpack use that as the frame and then took a big cardboard box and some different plates and things and just spray painted and glued a bunch of pieces onto it and downloaded pictures and actual stickers of the Ghostbusters backpack off the internet and cut out all the stickers and placed them around and then used the random wiring and components and stuff from all these different things that we'd taken apart through the past couple months and hot glued and attached them all to it and then took some Christmas lights and turned them on, used them with a little battery pack Christmas lights. So all that was inside and the whole thing was controlled by an old lightsaber that I spray painted and put a bunch of stuff on. So you'd hit the button on the lightsaber and it would light up from the front of it they turn the switches on the side of it. It would light up the different lights on his backpack as he wandered around. So there you go. So the, the, it took a little bit, but that way we were able to reuse, reduce, and recycle using stuff that we'd already taken apart. But then we would pile up a lot of these bits and pieces of random broken things. And after it got to an unwieldy state, I'd check to see around, and there would be... Um, posters or banners on the sides of different schools, local schools would say, hey, at this date and time, it's an e-waste recycling day. And so I would have a huge cardboard box full of a bunch of random circuit boards and bits and pieces and shards of broken stuff. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what they thought was going to happen. I think they were more interested in people bringing in and old microwave or an unused television or maybe an old VCR and not so much a bunch of random wires and stuff that are from everything under the sun together. But that's what they got and that's what they took. And so it ended up working out pretty well after all. We'd go to some of those. I grew up going to a lot of flea markets as a kid and so I have a lot of fond memories of going to these places and digging through piles of random things. 
and just trying to find little treasures or or something at all that was interesting to, to me or seems weird too going through the bits and pieces of someone else's life there are a couple times I've gone to thrift stores and seen like seemed like it was an, uh, a talent agent in Los Angeles because there were about 20 different signed headshots to this guy named Lou. Thanks, Lou, for everything. Lou, you're the best. Could have done it without you. Lou, you're a lifesaver. Love you, babe. Love you, Lou. And all these things. And I was very tempted to purchase them all and just put them on my wall and look at them and say, there you go. I'm, I'm Lou now. This is, this is my life, and these are the people. Or find out who the heck Lou was, or if Lou existed at all, because this is Los Angeles and Hollywood, and thinking back, they could have been just random props from some crazy pilot or some stupid TV show or a student project or something, and Lou never existed. I came up with a whole narrative for this old, grizzled, manager and ended up that it was just some kids usc student film and never actually went anywhere but that's how it is with life we're here and then we're not here but while we're here we make an impact and we tell stories about what we're doing we share where we go with each other and that's where we are when i would go to uh the store with my mom, I remember wandering around and there's a whole, there's a, a whole thing. And that's the end of my commute. It's the end of tonight's episode. So hope you guys were able to hit that sleep timer catch a couple Z's and I'll see you on the off.